Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your almost weekly, most of the time, rhetorical assault in the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I do things at a place called Freethink, which we recently acquired, freethink.com, which is great, because before it was like freethinkmedia.com. We had freethink.is, but we bought freethink.com. How much? Or in, uh, I don't even want to disclose it. <laughs> no, I mean like Asking, four figures, five figures, uh, is three. A, is a lot of money. No, it's not that much money. It was fine. Please don't be upset, investors. Um, the, the voice that you hear is Matt Welch, editor-at-large at Reason Magazine, a co-collaborator, conspirator, or something. I don't know. It's 2018. This is our first show of the year, and Michael Moynihan has predictably been called away at the very last minute to do something. It's it's entirely legitimate. There are no hard feelings but he's dead to You're us. You're saying cocaine is entirely legitimate? Just well, he so. has to pick it up from his dealer so that, right. you know, whatever. Um, but in the room with us today, uh, Anthony Fisher, who is very, I mean, he is just reliable. VOG. Just trustworthy. My, cocaine does not slow me down. Thank you for mm-hmm. being here, Anthony Fisher. My pleasure. Um, and uh, there are plenty of things going on, but we haven't seen each other. And so happy new year, gentlemen. It's wonderful to be with you all. Um, and this, this is the my, first time we've seen you since This is the first time you've seen me. Since I, I, I had to give a big double tap hug because it's yeah. the first time I've seen yeah, yeah. him. Uh, since, since uh, I became Daddy a father. Now I'm feeling bad because I just did the My left, voice is the, a little deeper. The left fist bump. <laughs> I, I feel... Your beard is super Baron Davis. <laughs> My beard is much thicker. I won't take your, off the hat. Your beard wants craziness. to make out with Laura Dern. <laughs> 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 Who I saw on the train the other day, um, which I would have treated her differently if I'd known that she was down with the, uh, the swirl there. Is that okay for me to make jokes about stuff like that? What, is, what does the swirl mean? Exactly. Um, I left. But I do have I do have things to say about child rearing. And the expertise that I've cultivated over the course of the last <laughs> four weeks. Oh, no. um, my daughter will be five weeks old on Sunday, and I uh, I know everything about this <laughs> shit now. I've it's, it, 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 it it's true. Um, if you check my Instagram feed, which hopefully will be retweeted into the or re-Instagrammed into the uh, We the Fifth Instagram feed, you'll see Camille doing an impression of his newborn daughter while also lecturing Matt and I about parenting because <laughs> we don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. Is that true? <laughs> you know, that, that happened about 10 minutes ago. God. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, let, I'll tell you a little bit about um, Leah Lynette Emerson Foster. Four names because my wife got to choose essentially the first two, which would have left me with nothing. And I just said, well, we're going to have to add another name. I wish I could give you... Uh, a better reason for that. Um, I like her a lot. I think she's fantastic. Um, the The real challenge that I'm having now is that it's still pretty difficult to figure out exactly what's going on with Leah at any point in time, like what's wrong with you at this moment, because it's a bit of a moving target. Um, you're crying. Are you hungry? Is it gas? Is the gas flowing f- flowing north or south like which which situation are we dealing with not quite sure she apparently hates to be swaddled um so all of the basic instruction that we've been given isn't really working out but she's adorable so i can cope with virtually anything the thing that i most enjoy about this whole experience however is watching like the synapses sort of ignite and the lights start to come on and it's clear that she's starting to notice and detect and understand different things um the out of control, like, oh, my God, everything is wrong. My diaper is full of feces. I hate this. This is 
terrible, but I also don't want you to touch me. Don't take my diaper off. Oh my God, you taking off my diaper and changing my diaper is also terrible. I feel, I feel really bad for this little girl at various times because she doesn't have the tools to understand what's happening to her. She doesn't have the tools to deal with the, the regular, like just ordinary routine craziness of life happens to her, including pooping your pants. Um, and for her, they're all like mini 9-11s, just over and over <laughs> again. It's a sequence of the worst possible thing that could happen to you. Today, we went for an immunization, and it's the first time she's had an injection. And for her, in her little brain, I can only imagine, like, this is 9-11 too. Well, she over knew that you were giving her autism, again. which is <laughs> really well, mean. I asked for the extra special autism shot, um, and well, the doctor was happy to oblige. If I, if I my, may. My, Russian, my Russian pediatrician, who looks like Ayn Rand, and I haven't said to her yet, oh, my God, you look like Ayn Rand. But I do like I walk right up to the line like, oh, my God, where are you from? Oh, Russia. Yeah. Yeah. Reading any good books lately? Um, <laughs> this not hurt. This not hurt. <laughs> you. Yeah. Selfishness virtue. <laughs> Read any 10,000 word romances? And Tracy picked her. I mean, I walked into the room and just found Ayn Rand um, sort of huddled over my child, probing her. and Train go through tunnel. Yeah, it's good. Super sexy. If, um, if it's any consolation, I, see, see, the thing is, I'm touched and happy that you are in love with the child. I am. And that, and that it's all about positivity. It's all... Every, the, I mean, all, there are parts all, of it that are awful. No, but, it's yeah. it, like, I mean, I've got three children and, and yeah, you to, know. Me, to me... Newboardum is terrible. <laughs> I, I, I don't. I don't have any warm feelings about it. It's necessary to get to the good stuff. Is but, in how the I first, feel. but the first but time was it? Was I'm, it kind of magical? The newborn. Oh, the first time was the worst. For me. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I, I was working sixteen-hour days on a terrible TV show, and uh, I would come Wait, home. The Independence was great too. That's no, that was my nice. second kid. I was going to say <laughs> Independence, the independence was, wasn't the first. No, no, well, different life. Uh, yeah. But anyway, um, no, no, no nostalgia for any of that stuff. Um, it was all about building up to like. The, the, Somebody put it to me, and I've always held on to this little nugget, is that the first three months of newborndom is basically the fourth trimester. They are mm-hmm. a bag of reflexes. They are a loaf of, be- of bread with reflexes, and, and you shouldn't put too much stock into the positive or the negative. You know, what, what, you're, what you're saying is, oh, she's figuring stuff out. I don't want to disabuse it. Because it's your. I mean, she, it, it, but she is. But like, hang on, the but hang, hang, coming hang on. on. Like, like they barely can see colors or yeah. lights or anything like that. True. For the first three months, and they, the personalities really start to come around six to nine months, and you're going to love that stuff. It's going to be fantastic for you. Um, it, for, for now, like if, if would, would I like that's what I'm saying. I don't want to disabuse you of any of this stuff. So you're saying if she you're enjoying. She you're enjoying, doesn't see race. She, yeah, I mean, yeah, she wouldn't see your, she wouldn't see your Nazi salutes or anything like that. He's pointing at. Me talking about Nazi salute. Well, you, you made a Nazi salute. Reference. My uh, my <laughs> yeah. daughter uh, smiled at me proactively when she was one day old. So yeah, uh, Anthony's just lying. He's like the guy who's like when you're on your first acid trip, saying ah, I've been there. Yeah, uh, I, I, only, uh, I only spoke of my own experience. Yeah. I didn't. Uh, but the 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 I, I dealt with both uh, colic. Um, a b- being, you know, I, like, quite much younger than you guys were when you had your first kid. I was, I was the the ripe old age of thirty, you know, which is quite young for these days, mm-hmm. this day and age. And I wasn't home, so uh, you know, That's my rough. wife, who really, you know, like, you know, she was on leave. She had her own struggles to deal with, and she dealt with them mostly alone. So when I would come home super late at night, totally fried for my stupid job. 
baby would be right in my hands because <laughs> she'd had it for 16 hours. Yeah. You know? So, um, you know, I, 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 I love my kids and, and I've had, you know, I, I, I can show pictures and talk wax poetic o- over wonderful parenting times, but I don't have any particular, um, affection for the very, very early newborn period. But it sounds like Camille has some advice for people out there mm-hmm. about how to parent. Well, I do. And I, I, I don't want to lay the entire system on you right away. And the truth is a lot of these, theories that I've developed, these Dr. Spock-like, uh, about how to navigate children probably aren't applicable to newborns. So I haven't been able to apply them to my own <laughs> child yet. But because I've determined like Marxism that... Hasn't, hasn't been tried yet, but yeah, it's going to be hasn't been tried great. Yet, but it's, it sounds like really convincing. So I'll just give you a taste of this. So if, if we begin with the premise of human action, from human action, let me borrow, borrow from Ludwig von Mises here, because that's what we do here on the fifth column. At least that's what I'll do right now. Um, the, the notion that, you know, as humans, it's felt uneasiness that compels us to act. The children are understanding the world around them, navigating this maze of emotions that they don't have the tools yet to quite disentangle and to rein in. The most important thing to teach someone who is constantly experiencing the worst tragedy imaginable, who freaks out and lays on the ground and is flailing because, oh, my God, I want that candy bar. It is the best possible candy bar. I've never wanted anything more. You won't let me have it. It's understandable that they're freaking out. Rule one is to make certain that this child knows that it can always get worse, that the stakes are enormous. They're worse than even they had an Honestly. Like this tragedy is befalling you right now, but me, omnipotent entity, have the ability to make things so much worse for you than they seem to be yeah, right um, now. You know, and that's it. We had that babysitter growing up saying, yeah. uh, uh, fire keep, and brimstone. You keep babysitter. crying. I'll give you something to cry about. Yeah. And it's weird. That just never really worked. That wasn't, <laughs> a, that wasn't good. Like babysitting and it would not sure be such good parenting. But it's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, a sound. It's, no? it's a, there's a push and pull, you know, there's the, your, your, your child should both fear and respect you, but should also trust you. And uh, you. But lay, I mean, if you, you have to, to take pick and choose, trust. No, but respect, they, they, fear is the most important. They don't, thing. You, you, isn't it? It's <laughs> fear will. Uh, yeah, fear. Fear is actually the most important thing. That's all I'm saying. That's but all I'm saying. You got to dole them out in doses where they can't even tell they're being dosed. You yeah. got to roofie them with the fear. Yeah, I I don't know. I'm gonna play this. I'm gonna play it very slowly. I'm not rushing anything. I'm enjoying every moment of this uh, situation. I even right now I'm thinking to myself, oh my god, that adorable like fat cheek <laughs> hip hop baby, and I, I call her hip hop because she makes these weird noises like a like a rapper. Like it, it won't make a lot of sense. I mean, you, 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 you actually, you, you, Fisher of course, did. know Fisher. I was looking at Matt when yeah, I said yeah, this yeah. won't make sense. To Everyone me. knew. But there's like these little things that she does, like, like, like Jigga. Like she goes. And what else does she do? I don't know. There's a bunch. I mean, the, the, yeah, you, no, no matter where you this. and your family end up, you your daughter can always brag about the fact that she, you know, spent her earliest time in bed That's true. You know, that's, that's some true. street credibility that the, you in just the do or die. Yeah. 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 Where are you from, baby? Bed stye. Yeah. Yeah. We might be out of there soon. <laughs> um, as gentrifier that I am, I've had like uh, half a dozen packages stolen from in front of my house in the last two weeks. So I'm about ready to to strangle a nigga. 
Um, and I don't mean that in a racial way. I'm just saying, although probability suggests it's because most of my neighbors, that was a joke as well. That's a little, that's a little rough. Letting you, you letting you work this your way out of this. Yeah, I understand. I mean, I'm fine. No, I know you're fine. I'm impervious. I'm sitting in the room with you. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm impervious. It's like, um, uh, geez, you know, there's like actual real shit going on. And I'm, I'm, there is like, we're 11 minutes in and I'm just kind of going on fire and fury is apparently the thing that we're supposed to be talking about. This epic work of journalistic... With a comically bad cover. Like, can we, t- can we talk about the cover at all? I oh, mean, it is a bad cover. It, it is, I mean, I didn't even get to set the whole thing up yet. So. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. No, just, it's try fine. To, try Go to, ahead. Try to just take, a, sure. t- take but, a new angle on it. Why don't we talk about the cover? Maybe you can <laughs> tell me who, who wrote the book. Who wrote the book? Michael Wolf wrote the book. Yeah, yeah. so is his name on the cover? His name well? is on the cover with two Fs. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, is, do we pronounce it Wolf then, or wolf. do we say Wolf? Yeah. Wolf. We'll always put the L in Wolf. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's in there. I'm just, I'm Wolf. Yeah, Wolf. wolf. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's a real bad cover. It's like, it would be bad if it was, um, you know, like like a, ra- a crazy, like, crank, beach-reading, right-wing political tome. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's stunning that this guy who's been, you know, one of the, you know, big forces in political access journalism forever, and yeah. a media critic, uh, who literally bamboozled his way into full and total access to the West Wing, his publisher put out this cover that is just abominable. It looks the, doesn't matter. <laughs> the New York Magazine excerpt, which was kind of the first or kind of the second, right? Because it was the the Guardian got some hold of it. Or, it was like hours apart. It was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, but New York Magazine had a bunch of great illustrations mm-hmm. for it, like oh, yeah. uh, like super uh, comic book, crying Melania, like, crying Melania, yeah. Philip K. Dick, <laughs> yeah. like uh, kind of uh, illustrations for it, which is awesome. But yeah, uh, yeah, that that was how I came up, I came across it. But, but I mean, it's, it's a it's amazing. It's been making waves like all week long. Released today, uh, I guess, after an epic week long build up. And as you mentioned, Matt, um, the Guardian, um, New York Magazine, um, of course, uh, he had a feature in like GQ also had an excerpt. Did they? Uh, yeah. A Hollywood Reporter did. Hollywood Reporter mm-hmm. had. Was that an excerpt or just some feature piece about the book that he'd written? I couldn't. I think it was a combo because I'd read some of the yeah. language in it in uh, the New York Magazine piece, too. You know, the, the upshot here is that Trump is an incurious, self-absorbed bore who is obsessed with celebrity. Um, and in fact, and this is this is probably my favorite part of all of this kind of salacious soap opera y stuff, had little real interest in winning elected office, was completely convinced that he was going to lose. And when they found out he was going to win, Melania's in tears, everyone is a little bit distraught, and the president apparently learns that he's probably gonna have to shelf his ideas for his own uh television network. Um there is something about all of this super sensationalist, tawdry stuff um, that, you know, makes me a little embarrassed to admit that I found myself chuckling like all throughout, aching for more uh, gossip and hoping and praying that most of this stuff is true, although it is not at all clear how much of it is true. Yeah, the the the. Uh, the- one of the triumphs of this as a piece of art, which is uh, how it should be at least in part uh, treated, I think, is it's really well written. Mm-hmm. I mean, like every single sentence, particularly in the New York Magazine excerpt, 
every paragraph for sure has like three to four to 12 just jaw dropping details. Trump and like and then his bed sheets. Like, don't touch my bed sheets. I'm going to rip them off when I throw them on the floor. You know, yeah, that's my, just if like my, if my shirt is on the floor, leave it there. And that I paragraph's also there. like, yeah, they have the first separate bedrooms uh, that we've seen in the in, in, in uh, the White House in 50 years. I mean, just. Ba 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 over and over again, and it's it's presented in this kind of breathless and totally funny and very well written style. So you can't help while you're reading it to root for it because you're being so entertained. Ooh. Am I not entertained? I am entertained at every step of the way. It is. I think there's some elements of it, and I think it's a great challenge. It makes it kind of interesting to talk to and think about. Uh, that, and that challenge kind of overlaps with new journalism and even some stuff that's not classified as new journalism, but uses some of the t- same techniques like the every all of uh, whatever Bob Woodward has done. Yes. Right. Where he recreates not just dialogue in places that he hasn't been, but also the interior monologues yes. of mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Which is extraordinary. Um, but, uh, one of the, uh, the, from like a, a journalism ethics point of view, one of the great struggles, at least that I have always had with the very books that I love the most and the authors that I love the most, the stuff that got me excited to do journalism in the first place was reading, you know, Tom Wolf, Electric Kool Aid Acid Test and, uh, uh, and Hunter Thompson books mm-hmm. and these kind of things. A lot of those guys took liberties. They recreated stuff that, that weren't, that Hunter Thompson famously is like, well, it's, it's not, uh, reliable, but it's accurate, or, or you know, or or uh, or some variation was the uh, the great quote about his work. Yeah. And so I think I think this this is in there. I mean, you're going to find there's a, a a reporter today whose name I'm blanking on, but it's described at, as, as going to this brunch at the Four Seasons, and he's like, "Yeah, I've never been at the Four Seasons in my life, <laughs> and I don't do brunch." And then people were lower responding to Twitter, and they're like, "Oh, uh, he actually spelled Hillary Rosen's uh, name wrong <sighs> in that paragraph," and they found a third error in that paragraph. I think he was referring to Dick Army as the former Speaker of the House, um, and that's just in one paragraph. I think there's going to be a lot of stuff like that. And most of the people who buy the book, they don't know anyway, or they build in a discount. That's what makes it interesting. I think. A lot of people are just kind of saying are thinking to themselves, you know what, 5 percent, 10 percent, kind of not very reliable, but I'm going to enjoy the hell out of this and also feel like until it's completely talked out of it, uh, that it is a vivid, impressionistic snapshot whose vibe is accurate, even if the details are not. And that's just a weird place. You don't want to defend that. You don't want to rely on any of that information. But at least uh, uh, comparing it to some of the, you know, we talked to 32 sources mm-hmm. type of things from the Washington Post, the Daily Beast have done a lot of stuff like that. It reads a lot like that, except with more stuff and better written. And I think he was just there longer than a lot of those White House reporters who are bitching like crazy about <laughs> this book right now because it, they didn't write it. And they see the the problems with it, and to do journalism meticulously, which Michael Wolf never has done, right? Um, never. He just does, he's, he's, just, he's quite upfront about the fact that he doesn't really do that. He like, does, he does above com- it. He yeah. does composite characters right, yeah. again, which a lot of new journalists did too. Um, so they're furious about all of this, and rightly so, because in order to do it their way, it would have taken them four times as long. Mm-hmm. Plus, they wouldn't have been able to get on the couch to begin with, because Mike Wolf, just like he did with Murdoch, he. Played Played Trump and all those guys like an absolute fool. He buttered them up in the in the public mm-hmm. uh, using journalism, uh, and because of that, bought himself access that he ended up using to stab them in the eyes. It's great. Well, before we get to the to the Bannon Trump um, fiasco, which I suppose is the big.
big, uh, shining bright light at the core of all of this. Most of the media coverage is focused on the feud that has erupted because Steve Bannon apparently was talking to Michael Wolf. At least he has not denied any of this stuff, which is weird. Um, but just to, to focus on this book itself and the kind of convenient relationship with the truth that he has, at least the sort of literal, this is the person I spoke to on this particular day. Um, it, it's a bit odd to see the excitement and enthusiasm from like, mainstream journalists who are talking to him about this book um, and are so excited and impassioned about what's happening here. And he's he's doing hits on all of the major news networks, with the exception of one, I suspect, um, and also doing like the morning television shows. Um it's not as though his reputation isn't well known. It's not as though mm-hmm. there's, there's anyone who thinks that this isn't, this, this is disciplined journalism. And I mean, there's this Alex Shepard piece in the New Republic, um, the title of which was, uh, Michael Wolf's Fire and Fury is a gift to Donald Trump. Um, the premise of it being that the, the work itself embodies sort of this, this approach to journalism that the Trump administration and its allies have been saying is indicative of sort of mainstream journalism at this particular moment, that they are so excited about the possibility of writing awful things about Donald Trump, that whether or not it's true is sort of secondary. Um, and they are, you know, all too eager to, to publish these things. If we know that there is sort of Perhaps the spirit of something that's here in the Michael Wolf books, which we've we've seen already. We know that Donald Trump is pretty self-absorbed. We've seen a lot of this reported in various other publications already. Um, Then is there a a danger in mainstream journalists celebrating it in the way that they are? The last time I I remember this kind of excitement for a post-election book was Game Change which was the post-2008 Mark Halperin, and who was the other guy who wrote with him. And it was... Mm. It was Mike Allen? I don't think it was Mike Allen. Heilman? Was it, was it the other mm, guy? Uh, uh, but, but anyway, that, that in like 2009 was an absolute um, sensation among political journalists in New York and D.C. They made a, a, a HBO movie about it, which unfortunately only took about half the book because the book was two parts. It was, uh, on one side, it was... Holy crap. Look at this team Obama thing, totally usurping, uh, team Hillary, which had totally assumed that it was the heir apparent forever. And on the other side was John McCain was cruising to an early, uh, nomination. And, um, then he did his mavericky choice only about three months, maybe even less that before the general election by choosing Sarah Palin. The movie, the HBO movie, was entirely about Sarah Palin and how that totally upended the McCain campaign. But it actually was a really dishy book. And from what I've seen, a lot better sourced so far. I haven't read Wolf's book yet, but just even from the discussions about his sourcing and about his composite characters, Game Change was a better sourced book um, than uh, Fire and Fury. But that was the last time I remember this kind of sensation where everybody was like, okay, cracking their knuckles. This is like everything in this book is going to be what we're going to talk about for the next several months. And that was a campaign book. And this is a governance book, which is uh, that's one of the things. <laughs> sort of. Well, there was campaign in, 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 in supposedly this campaign in Fire and Fury as well. We're talking a lot about what happened election night 
And, right. You know, That's true. But but yeah. it's it, but it's it's like portrait of the White House in chaos. I disagree with with Alex uh, Shepard's uh, conclusion mm-hmm. uh, in that um, that on net it's going to somehow uh, redound to Trump's favor. I just can't because it, it it has precipitated the divorce with Bannon and there aren't winners in that scenario between the two of them. The, Trumpism, Bannonism isn't a big enough boat. Trump is is very much force. Uh, forced choking Bannon out of his own movement right now. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the Mercer family, which mm-hmm. has been very, uh, generous to, uh, Trump, uh, you know, or Rebecca Mercer is, uh, um, uh, 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 you know, writing him out of his will. Um, there's a, apparently, according to the Wall Street Journal, a meeting at, writing at Bannon, Breitbart. Writing Bannon out of, out of a will. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that, they, they've been major benefactors of, uh, Steve Bannon. I mean, they'd kind of Bar- broken up two, three months ago, but yeah. this is, this is, you know, she went out of her way to make a statement at the Washington Post and, and, uh, uh, and supposedly the, uh, board of directors or whatever it's called at Breitbart is thinking about jettisoning the guy right now. Wow. And, and yeah, and Trump is definitely pushing on all of this. Like he's it's nuclear war for him against Bannon. And that's that whole process is something that just can't be beneficial uh, long term to Donald Trump, just because that means you're at war with someone who is in a pretty small pond of whatever it is that those two guys have in common. But is, is Bannon Here's here's what's interesting to me about the media uh, landscape about this. Is Bannon truly Breitbart or is Breitbart its own monster? Because according to the Breitbart commentator, commenters for the last two days, they are all totally team Trump. They hate Bannon. They have, the Bannon's a sellout. Bannon's a neoliberal cuck. I was – uh, Or not, globalist cuck. Um, and uh, so if Bannon is disposable, can can that whole universe exist without somebody – like and say what you want about Steve Bannon, very intelligent, ambitious guy – uh, can that universe exist without somebody like him at the helm? Um, th- that's a good question. I, I, I've seen that process in, in action. I was over on um, uh, Fox yesterday and it was a pretty packed green room with various guests and uh, and people we know were like, you know, can you believe what what, what, what Steve did? Um, you know, it's just not not good timing, not good timing. It's, you know, it's really it's, it's about time that he be, he be taken out to the woodshed. So like they're rallying around uh, uh, Team Trump in a in a kind of hilarious way. Uh, I mean, there is something to be said, and that was also a men that I mean, yes, everyone's greeting this with kind of salacious applause and breathlessness and looking for their name in the index and all that kind of stuff. Um, but there is also quite a lot of people saying, wait, hold on here. Um, Wolf has a reputation. Um, he has written crap in the past. He doesn't have a lot of fans out there mm-hmm. in the universe. People kind of hate his guts. Mm-hmm. It makes it also this whole thing kind of delicious. One of the reasons that he was able to get this is not just because uh, you know he could successfully suck up to Trump world and Bannon world uh, simultaneously. Wolf comes from that. Wolf, you know, famously goes out to eat in New York three times a day uh, <laughs> and thinks that people who don't are crazy. Uh, he, uh, you know, he's was like uh, dating and impregnating 29 uh, year olds. Not that there's anything wrong with that in your 60s. <laughs> but like um, there was a big, long file at, at, at him over at uh, Gawker back in the day. And he was even sort of friendly with uh, with Nick Denton. Um, he's kind of a sleazebag and relishes that role. But I think because he can come from and exude and talk in that kind of Manhattanese. That's part of the reason why he got access in addition to buttering uh, them up. So he's kind of the perfect person for this job. And there is something at least sort of um, 
I, is it a misuse of the word ironic? It's 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 interesting. All that, uses of the word ironic. Are yeah, I don't even know what it means anymore. Which, which is kind of ironic when you think about it's it. It's interesting that in the face that, that, that. of <laughs> a president who is, I think, more has a has a, a less tenuous and less like uh, uh, arduous grasp on the truth and people that we've seen in a long time and a movement around him, a media movement around him that's also like that to have the person who's getting them. Uh, right now, from a journalistic point of view, so see, <laughs> you know, so, well, like there's something kind of a uh, weird and and uh, and and rich about that. I mean, God help me, I'm saying this, but uh, regarding Wolf's sourcing, I thought Eric Erickson had a uh, an excellent point, and that is that Wolf has said, "I've got so many." Hours of recorded uh, conversations. He didn't Release say, the tapes. Didn't say who those tapes were with. He didn't say. He, it's a very vague statement. And uh, but by the narratives that we've seen and the excerpts that we've seen, everything corresponds with Steve Bannon's point of view of the Trump administration. Everything. Every like Jared Kushner's in, or in over his head. You know, all these people are in over their head, and yeah. the only one who looks good is Steve Bannon. So. If, 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 like, again, I, I, we all haven't read the book. Let's reserve judgment. Let's read the goddamn thing. No, I'll, but, I'll let you guys read it and tell me about it. <laughs> Fair I'm, enough. I'm good. But, uh, like, it's, I mean, Eric Erickson, again, God help me. I'm genuflecting. I'm doing the sign of the cross here, uh, to absolve myself. Uh, but the, the, the point of view that he puts forth that, this book might be best served as a document of how Steve Bannon left the White House more than anything. That might yeah. be the more the most valuable way to look at it as this like, you know, there, there, there may be indisputable, indisputable facts therein. But for the most part, it right now looks like Steve Bannon's point of view after an ugly divorce. It's a, there's there's a cipher in the middle of the story. Mm. And that's what I'm interested, whether it's true, because it's a pretty interesting thesis. I mean, I have my own uh, uh, obviously uh, bad thoughts about uh, Trump in general as a human being. But if it is true that the people surrounding him who work with him in the White House have a sense that he's this sort of impetuous child. And you see this in a lot of other reporting out there uh-huh. um, that he's just <laughs> he's just shouting at you know, guerrilla TV. Yeah, and the, and the, <laughs> the, 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 the McDonald's stuff and the germ phobia stuff and the clothes stuff, all no, this no, stuff's been pre-reported. No, and, yeah. and this is the point. This isn't an important book in the sense that where is the news here? I suppose the new the new development is the onslaught of criticism from a supposed Trump ally in Steve Bannon. An influential. And the, and the first, and the first stories that I saw were the word treasonous and unpatriotic. <laughs> um, also bad shit uh, describing the meeting between Trump Jr. and Russian with Russian lawyers who were supposed to be getting dirt from the Russians on Hillary Clinton. Now, that's what I saw on day one. And when I initially saw that, I thought to myself, oh, that's interesting. Steve Bannon is turning on the Trump world. Not so much. He's just sort of calling this thing treasonous. Whether or not it is is another thing entirely. Um, But what's interesting about that is that his Breitbart universe has pushed the whole Russia collusion thing as, quote unquote, fake news, uh totally, uh, totally fabricated globalist uh, conspiracy. But he personally thinks, which, and and, you know, but that's just it. I don't pull the room about what we think, but like. You know, that's a, that's some pretty hyperbolic the, shit. The worst, but the use of the word treasonous yeah. in, in that context isn't a, an endorsement of the Russia collusion thing, which is the other thing about this narrative. Like for all of the excited talk about it, like Donald Trump as the the self-absorbed dope who 
is pretty much running for president so that he can become a bigger celebrity, a global brand, and doesn't even want to win. That particular narrative does not conform particularly well to the grand Russian conspiracy totally. and the Trump the Trump campaign working closely with the Russians to get elected but so does, that they can take over the United States of America. But does what Bannon say contradict that? But that's what I'm that's that's what I'm saying. So. To say you take the meeting and I think that taking the meeting with the Russians is treasonous is not nearly the same thing as endorsing the main branch of the yeah. Russia collusion narrative. But, but that's fine. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's far, it's far afield. But, but it's still news. It's still news if he yeah, thinks that. I think that part I, is news, but I'm saying that. And he also, he also mm-hmm. intimated that there's no way that they do this without Trump himself being totally in on it, which he has denied. So sure. he's calling Trump a liar and he's saying that them doing this and not alerting the FBI is, in his judgment, a treasonous act. Yeah. I mean, and he also, I, I he also gave better using... direction on how how he would have conducted that meeting, which is you have the <laughs> lawyers take the meeting, and the lawyers do it at like the Marriott or the DoubleTree Hotel. You you want plausible deniability on this, yeah. but they thought it was a good idea to all show up in person. Look, the way he's, not, he's the way not that, wrong. The way that he he's not wrong about that, and I think also the way that he uses treasonous here is not like a legalistic definition. Yeah, he's like, not he, that's the way he talks. Yeah. I mean, he yeah. talks like that. He's He's a colorful, uh, hyperbolic speaker, and, yeah. uh, but it but it is interesting that he's pointing the finger strong. And he's made he's made mention of that before as well. I think kind of to get to to where you're at somewhere in the in the questioning, you're right. A lot of the basic kind of narrative uh, takeaway from it is not new. We've gotten bits of pieces of this. We can intuit it or think that we can intuit it. Affirms a lot of what we believe. It affirms a lot of what we believe, which is one of the reasons why it's, it's doing so well. Um, uh, but also it's the preponderance of it. It's the every sentence-ness of it. It's that his assertions, and this can't possibly be true, I don't think, but it's an interesting assertion. It makes me pause that everybody around thinks that Trump is an incompetent and uh, and it like and completely incurious and just a shambles you, and that you and don't that believe he, that and that you don't re- believe that 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 could be the case everyone I, I just you know the to- totalistic claims you know I, I think there's got to be people in the White Some House true who, believers in there this, 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 so the Michael Wolf having this kind of access thing reminds me totally spot on of what happened to Anthony Scaramucci who was like Ryan Lizzo is my paisan because our uncles kind of knew each other from Long Island and I'm gonna call him up unsolicited and off and holy cow, it ended up in in print. I I'll never trust a journalist again. That was literally the <laughs> rise and fall of Anthony Scaramucci, and uh, Trump, you know, as Jack Schaefer wrote, uh, got bamboozled by Michael Wolff, who wrote some sort of not critical pieces about him right in the run up to the election and just after the election. They allowed them access, and they are shocked, shocked that this journalist did this kind of thing where he just listened. You know, maybe, and we, we, we're doing more work than, than they're doing as far as, like, kind of trying to, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's yeah. about the journalistic ethics of the whole thing. But with that kind of unfettered access to the, the Oval Office, you are going to hear and see a ton of stuff, and they and can't he, believe. And he didn't write anything. And the only <laughs> things that he really wrote for a year was that he would occasionally come out and he'd whack journalists around. The, around the face yeah. and neck and say that he was oh, playing know, a long game. It was he brilliant. Played the yeah. long yeah. game. I mean, it is it is a it is a triumph uh, 
uh, even if it turns out to be disreputable. It is a, a it is an artistic triumph what he did, and I think it's a challenge to people who want to be both kind of treat journalism on an ethical level and just kind of want to sort fact from fic- fiction. It's pretty difficult, and I I would predict that we will see um, transcripts from some of the tapes, and we'll also learn that some of the stuff is recreations from notebooks that no one's ever going to be able to see. So, so you actually think there are in fact tapes? I'm not. I I'm think those so tapes sure. will never well, see. Sure, for we'll sure, he taped that dinner conversation, mm-hmm. right? Because um, it happened at his house. Uh, <laughs> and he's also in New York. New York's a one-party uh, state in terms of getting stuff. And and he also intimated in uh, the uh, New York Magazine excerpt that a lot of the leaks came from Trump just working his phone, sitting on his bed late at night, bitching about people. Yeah, t- talking to the other billionaires. Talking to all, the other billionaires who, who I, all live in New York. Who I totally and believe. some of them taped that, those phone calls. Absolutely. That, yeah. that was a big thing for me as far as verifying some of Wolf's stuff. I think that the, the, the stuff that is attributed to the other billionaires is totally true. And those people are all too happy to dish, you know, and but, have their finger on the, you know, yeah. history, you know. But, but here again, I mean, for the most part, like that stuff is embarrassing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty tawdry. Like it's it's showing it's exposing Trump to be precisely the person we already think he is. There's a sense in which the grab him by the pussy like tape is kind of all you need to know about this character. But then that's that is the guy. And it's the guy who's still in the White House. And when I say that, I don't mean it's the guy who is who is admitting to assaulting women sexually. I mean, look, he's he's like a regular Joe. He's he's not particularly interested in the complicated picture of the world around him. The the he's like the, your the shitty uncle. If you actually him. had a shitty uncle, yeah, he's his your shitty eyes uncle, glazing but over he's got his a lot of power. And him. I know you agree uh, that, that the power is the problem. Well, this is a, this but, is precisely yeah. this is precisely. But here's right. here's the question, yeah. uh, which dovetails kind of with, with what I was saying before. Uh, James Fallows had a piece in the Atlantic uh, that was kind of in high dudgeon about this, but it poses, I think, an interesting question. If it is true that yeah. all or let's say most or a hell of a a lot of the people who work every day with Trump or who have worked every day with Trump as president think that basically he's unfit to be president. Um, <laughs> if it is true, and I think this one is true, that a majority of, let's say, Republicans in the U.S. Senate think that he's fundamentally mm-hmm. unfit to be president. What do you do? What is your responsibility in that scenario? I'm, I'm not asking that because I know the answer. Fallows is like, well, you obviously have to you know, do the 25th Amendment thing and you have to go. He's 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 a hundred times worse than Richard Nixon. I think that, that's all hyperbolic. But like, seriously, what, what is your responsibility if fundamentally after seeing him behave, after seeing the way that he is and how he is presidented so far? And I think he's done some good things as president. Um, not many, but some. Um, <laughs> if that's true, what are you supposed to do? And I don't know the answer to that question. Well, what, would, is, what would you do, Camille? I mean, I mean, but but my 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 calculus is different than most people's. I don't think anyone, with the exception of me, perhaps, is qualified to do that job. And when I say <laughs> me, it's just because I would immediately start to devolve these powers and scream about how it's ridiculous that anyone is entrusted with all of this ability to do these crazy things. And I would I would try to explain to people. What kind of beard um, game would you have in the White House? Have you thought about that? I, I would try to. Well, this is the thing. Do I want to be respectable? And have people like appreciate the things that I say. I think I do. There have been bearded presidents. It might be time to bring it I'm back. Shave a little bit. James Harden. No, I, I don't do like total James Harden beard. My beard is like patchwork. Like I, I really do look. I'm being just a disheveled mess right now. This Very is the sad. thickest I made. I think I've ever seen it. Yeah, actually. I mean that's what she said. Um, 
That, now that I have a daughter. Is that fine? Dot, dot, dot. That's, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Fisher. She's so still here, like man. just an asexual blob to me. I, well, so. I mean, listen, I, there were only so many shows before you had a daughter where you were talking about, I got to keep her off the pole. That's all I got to do. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'd forgotten about those pledges in a way, um, but not really. I don't forget anything. Um, but but maybe, we, maybe we pivot away from this um, because there was something in there about um, the – in Fire and Fury about the the White House Correspondents' Dinner mm. and the panic in the White House about the Correspondents' Dinner, the fact that only Trump thought he could actually go do this job. And it's the description that Wolf gives of the prior administration of Obama, like preparing for these correspondence dinners and spending a lot of time like developing his timing so that he could go there and really perform well for the White House press corps and the White House press corps, like these huge media networks, like bringing celebrities with them to the dinners, including one Donald Trump one year. Um, that picture, that scene, like really stood out to me. The gross incestuousness of mainstream politicos covering the person in power, the prestige of the office, the sort of backslappiness of it all. How, yeah, we criticize you. Yeah, you're up there and we're asking tough questions. But in a way, like if you can play the game, it's a bit of a, there's a, there's a bit of a love affair. And it's not just celebrity Obama, like even W when he would show up and do a good job at those things, the, the sun shines a little brighter. Do you remember you. when Stephen Colbert got just yards full of grief by being a little bit rough on George W. Bush? Mm-hmm. And uh, if I recall correctly, Scalia, very funny stuff. Yeah, he, yeah, he just yeah. did Scalia. He was even given one of these. I mean, and it was the it was this thing where uh, even though I lived in, in Washington at the time, I obviously would not go to one of those things. Um but like everyone at the dinner and quite a lot of people in Washington were like, you know, that obviously wasn't funny. Mm-hmm. And absolutely everybody who I saw like oh. comment on this from the outside, like that was that, that, funny. I mean, in the Bush era, things were definitely ratcheted up much more politically than they were in the Clinton era. But the White House, the White House Correspondents Dinner was still very much inside uh-huh. the Beltway. But the Colbert uh, roast definitely made waves. It was like it, a, it, was, it was too far. No, that that I am so unsad that that culture has gotten it's not busted up it'll reassert itself yeah it's certainly it's going to be bad i mean Um, but like (laughs) that it's taken a couple so happy to be back together a couple of blows to the chin Uh, i mean it's you know for all of the pearl clutching about like the dignity and of the office and the prestige of the office the white house correspondence dinner is part of that that's part of the pageantry uh that the whole beltway Mm -hmm. um you know media conglomerate wants to you know perpetuate because that's their nerd they call it nerd prom, which is total bullshit, because to them, that's like they've been thirsting their whole lives to be a part of this. Like they all want to be Rachel Maddow guest bartending in the lobby. Uh, But Trump thumbing his nose at it and saying, I'm going to sit this one out was actually like a rare case where he was kind of trolling but he got ahead of the game. Like yeah. what, he, what he's doing right now, what, like like right now he's got a, uh, I'm going to announce my fake news media awards. And Colbert has already responded with, well, I've got my yeah, own yeah, fake make news. It me. Yeah, and, and it's like lame. Both of you are lame. Well, right the, I'm, I'm bored of both of you. But but Trump skipping the White House Correspondents Dinner, I actually thought was a, a rare move where he actually 
who talked about I mean, it last year? He, did, it. he didn't have much of a choice because yeah. um, he he was not going to win that particular uh, that particular battle. And folks were already starting to pull out. But part of the reason I bring that up is because I mean there was another. Um, piece feature that was written this week that was quite long. It was actually at the intercept. Um, it was one James Risen who has, it's an account of his experience, which begins with him writing pieces at the New York times in the early two thousands um, about uh, what else would you write about the Iraq war um, and learning a great many sensational things, um, including about what, maybe a decade plus before um, Edward Snowden's revelations about Stellar Wind and all of these other like mass surveillance programs and continuing to run into this buzzsaw, the government saying and the government working effectively with the times to put the kibosh on the stories that he's working on. But the story begins with him um, under the previous administration facing prosecution because he refused to give up his sources about these stories that he had written. And, you know, the the scene at the White House Correspondents' Dinner with Obama poking fun at Trump, as, as Wolf lays that out, the, the notion of the various media entities bringing sort of celebrities to sit at their tables who have fuck all to do with politics, um, that contrasted with the New York Times um, – being a publication that has a relationship with the White House, with power. They're not, it's not a conservative publication, but they have a relationship with power. They're, they're friendly with certain people. And in other cases, they just want to maintain the relationship. Um, and when the White House says, yeah, don't publish that because, uh, it's a national security risk. Uh, when in many cases, it's not clear that it was so much a national security risk. It was just embarrassing as hell. Mm-hmm. Um, it was painfully embarrassing to acknowledge that you had made egregious errors, like effectively giving nuclear plans to the Iranians. That's that's holy shit. Are you kidding me? And I don't know. There's there's something about this this piece that that Ryzen wrote. Um, I, I read it twice. Um, Jesus. Because you really must be on paternity. You, you, yeah, you have a kid. I'm on Seriously, How yeah. much? It's, 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 mostly she needs the boob, and I ain't got those. Uh, I can't. Yet. I can't feed the baby. Uh, I can change some diapers, but it leaves me a little bit uh, of time to do some reading. Um, but I read it twice, and honestly, like I, I, it's it's hard for. I wish this was written in a different week, in the sort of week where this could have taken like center stage, and perhaps there's never going to be a week like that. But at a, for a moment there, when the prosecution of James was going on, there was a plenty of media attention on that. It seems that we've sort of forgotten that. I hear people talking about how Donald Trump's threats to sue yeah. the publishers of this book the, are a threat to journalism. The attempted no, pros- no. The attempted prosecution of James Risen, that is a fucking the threat to journalism. The attempted prosecution of James Risen and James Rosen, weirdly enough, oh. uh, at Fox News happened around the same time um, by the Obama administration. The Obama administration uh, invoked the Espionage Act three times more than any other uh, administration Combined, Combined. Yeah. Right. And uh, Daniel Ellsberg, who's currently being traipsed around and I and I met and hugged and got an autograph from a couple of weeks ago uh, because of uh, his role in leaking the Pentagon Papers. He's he's being, you know, heralded because of uh, the post, uh, which is going to. It's the movie we need. Right yeah, now. Ex- exactly. Because uh, we never and, thr- and, face the threat. Like and, I, and, and again, I, lo- I love my milquetoast liberal friends who never really gave two shits about <laughs> civil liberties or the Constitution or anything like that when a Democrat is in office. But I remember. 
explaining to them not too long ago what the Pentagon Papers were <laughs> and and how uh, the Obama administration was uh, unprecedented in their crackdown on leakers, on um, any unauthorized information making it to the press, and uh, particularly using the cases of James Rosen and James Risen. And... And also glazed eyes. Nobody yeah. ever heard of this stuff, even though it was well reported. You know, it 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 just did not carry the kind like casual like MSNBC anchors who you whether they're journalists or not, we can make that argument. But they have a huge megaphone. These are the people that tweet stuff like, "Oh, Donald Trump is an unprecedented threat to the media because he won't take questions from certain organizations, or he'll like call for Dave Weigel to be fired." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This, this this stuff is the end of the world. But James Rosen and James Risen being threatened with prison time for mm-hmm. not revealing their sources under Obama. That happened? No way. Yeah, worse, Wait, worse. Are you sure? Link, please. <laughs> I mean, worth yeah, worth yeah, noting yeah. that the press secretary this week also, when asked whether or not uh, Steve Bannon should be uh, fired, um, said, uh, "Yeah, maybe they should look into that." Which would put him, I think, the fifth or sixth or seventh <laughs> person who works for a journalistic institution. Steve Bannon and Jamel Hill. Who yeah, the White bros. House. And Weigel. Um, <laughs> which is, you know, it's, it's improper. The president have a great track, track record getting those people fired. It's totally improper. It, Dave's it, better it, than all. It, it like, uh, uh, it uh, degrades uh, a lot of sense of dignity and all this kind of stuff. But it doesn't. Good thing. Would, uh, no, some of it, some of it's not a good thing. You don't, I agree. You don't want um, the presidents or people in power even making certain types of jokes. It ain't funny. Um, that's all true, and it just pales in comparison to what the Obama administration actually, actually did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Include including spying on two hundred journalists from the Associated Press. Phone records, which were, is crazy. It, I mean, yeah, again, I'm Trump has been president for a that. year, and and I and I don't doubt. I, I feel like if Trump knew the things he could do, he'd do worse <laughs> things. But I, this, this is part of that. They haven't curiosity. shown him on Fox and Friends. It. Yet. It's been a year. It's been a year. He hasn't done anything the to most, the press the as The most as important thing to him is getting good media coverage. Mm. It's funny, like, mm. after Steve Bannon not only um, calls his son, like, a treasonous bastard um, and has denigrated his daughter in this in this new book, has not said he hadn't done any of those things. Nope. A day later, Steve Bannon says, Donald Trump is a great man. Nothing can pull us apart. Donald Trump almost seemed willing to forgive him in that moment. Well, he seems to have backed away from some of those things. That's all you need to do. All yeah. you need to do is flatter this man. So, so, is Nothing that, else so, matters so, so what happened first? Did, did, did Trump back off before or after Sloppy Steve? It was before Sloppy uh, Steve. Before Sloppy Steve. Yeah, yeah before right. Sloppy Steve. Sloppy Steve is a good one, though. It is. I like they, that. Yeah. Except when people told me what it really meant. Uh, I, I came across two, <laughs> I don't. I don't know what you mean. Two more things. Look it up in Urban Dictionary. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's really like... It's, two, two cups, one Bannon? It's yeah, really not. It's yeah. not a good one. Not a good one at all. Um, Google help Everybody's me. Before we, uh, before we uh, uh, leave Obama alone like a crying Britney... Um, uh, I just happened upon two things today that infuriated me in the same kind of vein uh, about him. And it infuriated me a little bit about him or a lot about him, and the, but also a lot about the kind of a pillow of silence that surrounded this type of behavior when he was president. Uh, one was, this is in the context of people complaining that, you know, it's an unprecedented attack on the free press when, when they uh, try to do a cease and desist or whatever kind of bullshit threat to not get this thing published. Which like, his lawyers almost certainly said, this is a stupid this idea. This is stupid. You're not going to do it. And that's what they always do. 
too. But they build by the hour, so we'll um, <laughs> During the uh, 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 Benghazi uh, uh, flame up and all the protests in the uh, in the Muslim world on September 11th, 2012, if I'm, I got that right, or 2011. 12. Uh, Let's not forget that the State Department called up Egypt and I believe Pakistan. I'm like, yeah, can you take down that little YouTube video? Can you just go ahead and take that one down? Um, and they they also, I think, uh, encouraged uh, Facebook and YouTube here in the United States to do it. But they said, no, thanks. We're good. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were able to effectively get takedown orders from a stupid ass like trailer YouTube video here. And like no one, everyone thinks that's either fine or they don't care about it. And the other one, and this is totally idiosyncratic, but sticks in my craw because it's the type of thing that Obama did constantly. I've already forgotten about it because who kind of who cares? I was just writing a post uh, today about uh, Trump's uh, deregulation record and different people's uh, overreactions and and misunderstandings uh, about it or whatever. Um, And uh, I went back and saw some old posts that I did and Obama in every speech at some point on the campaign trail, even the the state union addresses or just kind of like, you know, major Obama speech uh, would say um, the, you know, the other party uh, for eight years, they had a theory that if you just deregulate everything um, (laughs) uh, and uh, you know, the financial markets will take care of themselves. And it's like, Dude, did, did they have that theory? That Dude, wasn't, different, different administration, bro. <laughs> These things are measurable. <laughs> like you can measure the number of regulations, for instance, per year. You can measure what is the average cost of them. You could separate that out by financial sector, mm-hmm. for example. And what you would find there is that, as we did uh, at, at recent, Veronique Derugy and other people did, is that George W. Bush increased significant and total numbers of regulations at a much higher rate, including personnel, budgets, significant stuff than Bill Clinton ever did. Bill Clinton actually reduced the number of financial mm-hmm. regulations. George W. Bush totally accelerated them, um, uh, partly in the wake of uh, Enron and, yeah, and Sarbanes-Oxley and all this kind of stuff. But Obama could say this every single day, and no one would say that he is the most unique liar in the history of lying McLiar presidents. He would say it, it was a lie, yeah. constantly. And he was never, ever, in fact, he was given these uh, kind of uh, beautiful tongue baths by, uh, I remember, at uh, Time Magazine during the 2012 uh, uh, Democratic National Convention. They th- give this interview with him. And they're like, the conclusion of the interview might have even been in the headline was like, Obama, you know, he knows that his record has been great, but he just <laughs> wonders, you know, it's, it, it, if you just tell the truth to Americans like this, are they going to get it? Are they really going to understand? <laughs> or are they just going to, you know, fall for the lies by Republicans? Yeah, it's yeah. just such a shame. Yeah. Um, this grates, um, you, and, and by failing to recognize that, while at that time in 2012, calling Paul Ryan the worst liar in the history of all lying because he said that such and such factory closed down in the, you know, the, the upper Midwest, uh, in this year instead of the year before. Seriously, this, they were basing this on, um, how's that going to put you in a situation where you can actually deal with a, an actual liar like Donald Trump? Well, you can't. And this is very frustrating because at some point you do get that bad person at the door and you've just shot your credibility to shreds on all of this. And this kind of gets back to your, you know, ultimate uh, uh, question about the Michael Wolf book. Is this going to contribute to that sense of, well, we can't trust these people anyway, so we might as well uh, trust Donald Trump. It might. um, And certainly the overall kind of vibe of people just seizing on every little thing, um, two scoops of ice cream a day and whatever the hell um, is uh, uh, is going to degrade that sense of of uh, of 
taking criticism of, of Trump seriously. Uh, and it's uh, and it's frustrating. Well, it's it's funny that you bring up the truthiness of the Obama era, because another story that kind of was fairly huge, but died pretty quickly while we've been apart was uh, the investigation into the Obama administration's dealing with Hezbollah uh-huh. and the yeah, Iran right. story, um, the Iran deal. So we already know that Ben Rhodes lied to us and, you know, under the orders of the Obama administration to sell the Iran deal. Spell that out for us for those of us who don't follow. It uh, it's it's <laughs> difficult. To, it's <laughs> difficult to do it t- tightly. But um, the, the Iran making some kind of nuclear deal that avoided a full on hot war uh, where we tried to decapitate the Iran. The Iranian regime and bomb all their nuclear reactors, which are either in populated areas or heavily embedded in mountains. Um, this is something that I supported. I supported the Obama administration's efforts to avoid war with Iran. Um, but we we know from I believe it was a New York Times report. I believe it was earlier in 20, I think it was April or May of 2017, where it was basically spelled out that Ben Rhodes had been selling bullshit to us because that's what we needed to hear. You couldn't hear, you couldn't hear the, the dirty deals, details of it because it was getting to the end game was the important part. And so this political, Politico report that came out a couple of weeks ago, uh, basically, spelled out how much bad shit we actually did sell out uh, uh, at the expense of this deal. And among those things were completely taking the handcuffs off of Hezbollah, who, like most revolutionary terrorist groups, is actually a criminal syndicate, too, much like um, the IRA. The IRA, they're heroin dealers, you know, in Belfast, but they also have, you know, nationalist, you know, revolutionary ambitions. And Hezbollah might be freedom fighters for the Palestinian or pan-Arab cause, but they're gangsters when it comes down to it as well. They are also... I thought ma- for sure you were going to mention FARC, but... They, well, right, I'll get to it. They, they, were, they were also major players in the Syrian war, which, you know, was once a big deal. And uh, so basically, like, things that are kind of buried in the chaos are that we completely let, you know, took the handcuffs off of Hezbollah in some ways kind of directly funded them. And also thereby Hezbollah was one of the proxy armies of Bashar al-Assad, you know, and so there were no good guys in the Syrian civil war except for the Syria free army, which is a nebulous catch all term that doesn't really mean anything that was pushed. Two dudes, John McCain saw it on an airport. Exactly. You know, but, you know, for the most part, the major players of the Syria civil war, the ones that actually, you know, survived or continue to survive were ISIS and Hezbollah. So it's like ISIS versus Hezbollah. Who do you want to win? But the Obama administration helped Hezbollah when it came down to it during this time of war. And you're saying lied about it. Or and totally lied yeah. about it. And, and, and the way they lied about it was uh, benevolent lying. That was the way Ben Rhodes sold it and, and is still defended. It's a noble lie. So yeah, is, yeah. Was, the, was the deal worth it, though? I will absolutely punt on that question. <laughs> um, I will, I'll say this. If, if, Iran, if Iran has a nuclear weapon within the next 10 years... Absolutely not. If they don't, maybe. Yeah. Although, I mean, given the the 
current situation with North Korea and the fact that, as we've talked about here in the past, like we're probably going to have to get to the fa- to, to a place where we're willing to cope with the reality. Well, how about North Iran Korea's right now with the, the protests in Iran? Huge, huge, huge deal going on in Iran Which right Donald now. Donald Trump is taking credit for. Uh, yeah, again, I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying not to, you know, go down those rabbit holes, but like the, the Iranians are giving him credit for it. They're, they're, it, it. they're saying that his tweets, his tweets and Mike Pence's tweets, I'm not sure Mike Pence is actually tweeting about this, but they're saying that the, the president's tweets are the reason that these protests are taking place. I'd be loath, I'd be loath to, 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 to attribute anything to the Iranian people at the moment, <laughs> um, because a huge difference between right now and the, the big protests of the aborted Green Revolution in 2009 yeah. is that the Green Revolution in 2009 was mostly Tehran. And now it's spreading out it's all much further. Right? Mm, there's and, and, there's and, something to be said, is there not? At least I've, I've heard people say it, so it must be true, uh, that... Um, so the Iran deal, part of what it did is that it, it unlocked these uh, assets that had been frozen for a long time. I think it's frequently mischaracterized as we gave them yes, money. Totally. The, the right wing is not to be trusted in the way they characterize this stuff. But let's make but no mistake. Money, yeah, money sure. got into exactly. Iran. Yes. And, um, and part of the upset right now is like, Where's my, they were promised. Where's my fucking money? <laughs> the, the, Iranian, the Iranian people were promised something that finally, now that this these handcuffs are off, we'll see economic growth and all sorts of results as a consequence of this deal. They're not necessarily I want to believe. I don't know this is true, but I want to believe that this is true because it, 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 it conforms my own sense of, uh, of uh, policy preferences, especially also in places like Cuba. I've always been of the opinion that sanctions are stupid because it gives regimes excuses. Mm-hmm. And so you lift the excuse and then people are like, wait a second now. You're telling me that it's this bad now? Yeah. Um, when the excuse is gone? Um, so I want to believe this is true. And, and, and uh, Iran, but I don't know. And, and, and Iran, like the people of Iran, are much more educated, much more cosmopolitan, much more pro-American than the than much of the Arab world. It's a it's a common American head up our ass. You know, there's nothing you know three blocks from us. But Iranians are not. Arabs, you know, they're Persians and they have a different culture and they might have hated the Shah. They might have hated this, you know, dictator that we propped up who was very westernized, but they actually now it's almost like it almost kind of reminds me of a reverse nostalgia uh, with what would happen with East Germany, where like uh, the economy didn't improve in East Germany enough. So they had uh, nostalgia for communism in Iran. They hated the Shah. But they hate theocracy more at this point after after 40 years or so. And the majority of people yeah. weren't born then. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, they, it's, they, a, it's a young country. Yeah. And 1979, I regret to inform myself, was probably before Camille was born. That's true. Facts. Bless it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, like, you know, you move on. You haven't given any props to this 100. Yeah, that's proof. true. Time out. Yeah. The, who, whoever gave us this, Camille, you know who gave us this, this, uh, Absolutely hyperpotent uh, bottle of booze. Yeah, I'm, I'm so scared of this. I'm totally just sipping. Yeah, if I'd have been drinking this properly, this I wouldn't. We're into our second my, hour. I haven't. My had a S's second, would so, not yeah, uh, yeah. Won't be working here. Small batch, Colonel E. H. Taylor, first and only. It says here, straight Kentucky bourbon whiskey, fifty percent alcohol by volume, one hundred proof. Mm-hmm. Uh, beautiful uh, labels and typography yeah, so, here. So, mm-hmm. so Camille didn't know what, what proof meant, and it, it just basically <laughs> means uh, double percent. Um, I know it means strong. Yeah, strong as strong. hell. And uh, and we were, you know, like it. it mm-hmm. 
Matt, a, it, Matt and I both remarked that some of our... It's a gift uh, from a listener. Okay, who we got? His name is Paul Hansen. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul and, Hansen. And uh, he's at P-K-H-Tex, T-E-X. P-K-H-Tex, at least that's if my eyes were functioning well, because while you guys have been sipping on it, um, I've been pouring it and drinking it, uh, which is probably not the uh, hey, right stratagem. Paul, Paul uh, for for but, us uh, degenerates, you, 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 you have struck uh, both joy and fear in our hearts mm-hmm. with the bottle. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of a lot of ooze at the beginning. Um, before we get out of here, there are two two quick things. Well, one quick thing, and then the other maybe would take a little longer. With um, I saw a, a story earlier today about Facebook um, actually backing away from um, a strategy that it had to flag to place bright red flags beside um, news items and people's news feeds that were fake news because they discovered that those bright red flags made people more likely to read and share. <laughs> I loved it. I, was like, I loved that. I, it's just so fantastic. <laughs> but but here's here's the rub. What they've actually decided is that what they'll do is place additional articles alongside the fake news, effectively giving people additional context. And this perhaps has the desired effect of keeping people from reading things, i.e., you say to folks, hey, this is more complicated than you think. And they just say, ah, fuck it. I'm not reading this shit at all. You put a bright red flag beside it that says fake as fuck and they want to read it, which is I just think this great. now solves the question. I, I'd put it up on my Twitter feed a couple of times. Like what should if if uh, uh, Steve Bannon gets bounced out of Breitbart, where does he go next? Right. Mm-hmm. To which um, the incredible uh, uh Tweeter, former blogger. Uh, uh, well, I think we're out of ice. We have ice in the. Um, That's all right. I'm, yeah. I'm, it's, uh, uh, Iowa Hawk uh, said layers. David Burge, great, great, uh, brilliant tweeter. <laughs> great American uh, said layers. The, <laughs> the publication for for plus size men who are really in shirts. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, I think uh, I think uh, Red Flag is the name of the publication that does Max. Just fucking lean into it. Um, the other thing is the Trump administration in the closing days of 2017 managed to do something unprecedented. Get signature legislation passed, um, specifically the Trump tax cut, um, which he claims is the biggest tax cut in history, um, which it most certainly isn't. But nevertheless, it is kind of a big deal. Um, major tax Legislation, major tax cuts, reductions do not happen every single administration. They don't happen every Republican administration. They've happened like several times since what, like the 1930s. Um, and this is a pretty substantial deal. Um, I saw something at Politico, um, and it's something that you would see sort of in any number of publications. This is back in like September. Um, but I was rereading it, how past income tax rate cuts um, on the wealthy affected the economy. And there are typically in sort of Vox fashion, these explainer pieces that purport to tell you exactly how this dynamic works, whether or not promises that lower taxes on the rich trickle down is something that we can just sort of prove empirically. And they specifically point to a congressional uh, study that went and correlated actual tax cuts for wealthier demographics and 
how the economy performed in the year following. Um, and the fact that there didn't seem to be a tight correlation between economic performance um, and tax reductions. Um, and obviously, maybe one year after isn't enough. But Politico did their own study and they looked at a broader time span and they similarly didn't find um, a tight correlation between these tax reductions and um, the economic performance, tax reductions for the rich and economic performance. Um, and I sort of found my my eyes glazing over as I was reading this article. And I find myself in many contexts, and I thought this as well um, while reading Heather McDonald's somewhat controversial piece from uh, over the weekend um, about uh, proactive policing, um, which we may talk about on another day. I'd love to get Heather and like Wes Lowry and some other folks in the room so we could just trash, uh, just hash out some of that stuff, because I think it's super interesting. Um, but I, I find myself becoming increasingly skeptical of like most social so analytical conclusions that are trying to be sort of derived for social scientific purposes, i.e. we can prove once and for all that the minimum wage totally doesn't destroy jobs or prove once and for all that the minimum wage totally destroys jobs. The fact of the matter is that time periods are always different from one another and that the number of factors like in, in economics class, they would always say all other things being equal. The important caveat is that all other things are never fucking equal. They yeah. just aren't. I mean, you can you can you can measure minimum wage better because there is a place that is the lower end of the labor market, and uh, and there are a number of those jobs that you can come close to counting up. Mm -hmm. And there is a black market also, which doesn't get talked about a lot. A lot of these uh, but, uh, but cities. But it already sounds so complicated that. But that's so much less yeah. complicated than the economy. Yeah. I mean, I was uh, there was a piece, believe it or not, in the New York Times on January first. I think they, they put it there so that no one would ever read it. Uh, but it was a, a front page story about uh, deregulation. It was called the Trump effect. And uh, every single quote basically from a business person and it was basically the conclusion more or less of the article was that business investment is way up. People are super stoked about Trump's deregulatory or regulatory kind of slow down um, uh, efforts there. And so like measurably um, uh, amounts of investment have gone up much faster than they have in, in a while. They're starting to put up uh, upward pressure on wages and the business people and, and like uh, representatives that they quoted throughout, like, yeah, it's Trump. We got a sense that they're not going to be so onerous, the regulations in the economy. But throughout the piece, you can tell they wrote it like a hostage note. Um, it's like um, economics have shown that uh, regulatory uh, uh, deregulation uh, doesn't have uh, any real measurable uh, impact on the economy. And it's like <laughs> deregulation, the economy, the economy. It's yeah. very, very difficult to say. So um, I, I think that, yeah, anytime you're talking about the economy, what effect that the, uh, the tax cuts will have. I mean, part of what the economy is doing right now is that the economy all over the non like famine having world uh is great mm -hmm. everywhere. Not great, but I mean, like, is growing at a pretty rapid clip everywhere. It's growing in France. It's growing in Pakistan. It's just growing all over the place. So how much of that is Trump? How much of that is cyclical? How much of it is a bubble that's going to pop? No one fucking knows. No one ever really knows. The thing that I think that we, we have a much better handle on mm -hmm. with tax cuts are that um, the amount of revenue that's going to come into the government next year is going to be lower. Right. Um, and we also know um, because of the tax cuts and the way that it was passed, which is the precursor was we're going to spend more money. 
They they did a 10-year spending deal increase in order to pave the way for the tax cuts. They, we will increase the deficit by $1.5 trillion at least. It'll be much more than that over 10 years. And that was our, uh, our precursor to all of this kind of stuff. That plus the political realities of it's 2018. Trump wants to do infrastructure, DACA, uh, and uh, and uh, one other money-spending thing um, next year. We're just going to spend a lot of money. So that was always my problem with this thing from the beginning is that we're going to get back to trillion-dollar deficits. That's right. a real number. That's a real big number. Uh, it's a real not very good uh, number. And that number, again, you know, when you measure big economy things and make claims – correlates at least somewhat pretty well. If you have a debt higher than 90% GDP is the general sense of that that has, uh, it crowds out other investment in the economy. Still, the correlation causation is all tangled and messed up. Yeah. But you're just putting yourself, regardless of whether you think it has no impact on the economy, you're putting yourself in a precarious position when you are taking in $1 trillion less than you are spending. Yeah. Um, and that as a condition of doing that, you decide to spend more. And that's the place where Republicans are at. There is no place left in two-party politics to actually care about either cutting spending or having small deficits, and we're going to pay for that for generations. Yeah, I guess for me, it's the the, the macroeconomic theory is sort of, generally speaking, becomes like all I'm really interested in, and most of the the attempts to try and prove one particular vantage point, either the conservative economic vantage point or the progressive economic vantage point, which oftentimes is, you know, are you are you at all interested in inequality? And do you think that's the principal problem? Like there it, it, it feels to me um, when I read most of that stuff, the stuff that emanates from these economic um, these economic policy shops that have a. a a partisan bent or an ideological bent that they begin with the conclusion in mind and arrive there in an unsurprising fashion. Um, I, I don't know what will happen when the taxes are cut on the rich this time around. Do you know what you generally pay more know? Not what have you? Oh, that oh I'm going to pay more. Yeah. Um, but my, but my general sensibility is that the bottom line question here is less money for the government. Maybe that's not the worst thing in the world. Are they going to make good use of that money? But what, what, there are plenty what, what, of reasons to be skeptical uh, about that in a very fundamental sense. They're spending I, 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 anyway. I, think there's, I think there's one thing. <laughs> and they're spending anyway, which is which is the huge problem. Like this is a first order problem that the spending is happening and that in many cases it's not getting the desired results under any possible scenario, um, which, you know. It's like it's like I don't know. In order, I'm a little it, drunk. It, <laughs> I think it's important to remember that Trump ran as I'm going to do things differently. I'm the businessman. I'm going to cut through the bullshit. Yeah, I'm going to be beyond party yeah. here. And this seems pretty standard issue Republican bullshit as far as cut taxes, keep spending. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So so what's different really? Like what's revolutionary about this? And does anyone care? Do, do, no. Do, no. Do, 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 the re, do the people that wanted to burn the Republican Party down from within who made Trump president care? Do the standard issue mainstream? Do, do they care that they're getting their usual fare? Does any of this have any consequence? Because Trump's going to run for president again, right? So can he do this again? I think, I think it's important to assert that hmm. a corporate 
uh, tax rate cut from 35% to 20%. That's a That's big material. Cut. That's a big That's cut. a big deal. The Bush tax cuts of 2001 and 2003, they were personal. I got my check. We bought the George Bush bed for 600 bucks in 2001. <laughs> you know, that rebate check was like so gimmicky. Oh, of course. Yeah, of like course it cost them yeah. a bunch of money. Um, uh, but I still uh, bought a bed. Uh, still, <laughs> still, still use it. If Trump sends me a check, I'm going to buy a new bed. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, here's a story that we don't have time to, to talk about, but I just got an $87,000 uh, medical bill. $87,000. Excuse me? $87,000. You, you actually teased that before, and I was hoping you'd talk about it. But you know. $87,000. It has a happy ending, but uh, as far as we know. Um, uh, <laughs> Maybe the next time. <laughs> yeah, uh, next Jeez. time. But uh, but uh, uh, no, that's a big tax cut. That, that differentiates it, at least from George W. Bush. But other than that, and that's a big uh, other, but still, it's tax cut and spend. Uh, Trump's doing and it's a temporary one, too, because it all expires, uh, you know, or it's slated to expire. Now my asses are problematic um, within 10 years. So (laughs) we're following tax cut and spend from George W. Bush, which no one gave him any love for by 2006 and seven because they're already sick of him as a president. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's what Trump is. There was other stuff going on in his presidency. I I heard. Yeah. Um, well, we should probably get out of here pretty soon. Um, I did, I did mention that, um, the, the piece, the Heather McDonald piece, which I believe at first there was a piece in National Review, which was, um, criticized ferociously by many, many people, including Wes Lowry, um, and, uh, was it Noah Smith, um, who is at Bloomberg, right? Noah Smith opinion. Too many Noahs. Okay. Well, yeah. Noah Smith at Bloomberg. Um, the, the yes. principal criticism um, of the piece is that it's super duper racist. Um, it's super duper racist. Twitter moments actually characterized I, it as that. As I well. saw. I saw yeah. that as well. Yeah. yeah Noah. It, it actually highlighted Noah's pushback. Um, there's plenty that I could say about Heather McDonald. Um, I think she's wrong uh, about a number of things. Um, what seems to really make people upset, however, is when she like trots out like inconvenient facts or facts that aren't like particularly fun to engage with. Um, It's the most criminal justice conversations are framed around race in this country. Um, They've been dominated by sort of the Black Lives Matter crowd on the left um, who are deeply concerned about police shootings of civilians, which I am concerned about the fact that police aren't often convicted of that. I'm also concerned about that. And the fact that black people are disproportionately um, the victims of these shootings so far as they can, so far as they're concerned, I disagree um, about whether or not it's disproportionate, but I still think if there's a hundred of these happening a year where there's unarmed civilians being shot, a hundred of them should be thoroughly investigated and we should do as much as we can to, to limit that number down to zero. Let's fix that problem. Um, the problem is that the conversations start at sort of race at the core mm-hmm. of these conversations. And I think that whatever else Heather is doing right or wrong, um, part of the issue for her is that she insists on having those conversations in the same fashion. Yeah. That when she presents these data points about black people being X percent more likely to commit these shootings or black people being X percent more likely to be the victims of these crimes. Like one, that's not a response to the concern that's being raised by the Black Lives Matter. But it crowd. touches an emotional button. Um, but it does touch an emotional button for them. Yes. 
oftentimes what she'll do is she will frame the issue from the perspective of the victim. She'll say black people are more likely to be the victims of these crimes. They're more often the victims of these crimes. So if we care about these these people in these communities, we ought to, you know, care about increasing the policing that's happening in these neighborhoods. She also did a bit of a bait and switch, which and and I'm I'm with you that like the the pile on with her that this is obviously a racist point of view. It's it's not. It's not obviously a racist point of view, in my estimation, for as somebody. And again, I did documentary for Reason TV in 2013 at the height of stop and frisk during the trial where Heather McDonald was a primary interview source of Mm -hmm. mine. She she spoke with us for an hour. She was very gracious. She was wrong about almost everything. But we gave her her say. Mm -hmm. And it's now four years later. Later, everything she predicted hasn't happened. Everything, it's totally wrong. And she's now completely pivoted that argument, not addressing anything she got wrong, to, well, gentrification is good, which is a total diff- totally different conversation <laughs> that I might even be somewhat sympathetic to, somewhat, uh, you know, but I, it's a bad faith argument from somebody who I actually do think is a worthy adversary, mm-hmm. an intellectual, you know, somebody who actually does her homework and is not a, you know, uh, She's not a bomb thrower. She yeah. actually, you know, has, you know, data behind her. But it's kind of weak. So, I mean, so again, the, the, the Twitter moments literally painting it as look at this racist thing that National Review printed Heather yeah. McDonald. I'm, that's garbage. But she should not be let off the hook for the fact that she was wrong. She didn't know it up to a single word of it and has now completely tried to change the, the discussion. And Kyle Smith, it should be pointed out, longtime New York Post uh, movie reviewer and columnist, and now he works for the National Review, um, had a piece out a couple days ago saying, I was wrong about stop and frisk. Like crime this year is as low as it's ever been in New York City um, when it's been pared back. And well, I was wrong. We were and, some of us and, wrong. and to be explicit here, I mean, Heather's position is that the the revolution in sort of scientific data driven policing, the Comstat revolution, I believe she calls it, um, is the thing that has reduced crime rates dramatically in the United States and preemptive policing, stop and frisk, for example, like stopping people in particular areas, as the data suggests that you ought to, can greatly help to reduce crime, that the Ferguson effect, the Ferguson effect that she's dubbed it, the the fact that there is more resentment of police as a consequence of all of the negative publicity that has come about because of the prominence of Black Lives Matter, that the Ferguson effect has actually caused increases in crime in virtually every place except for New York. And in New York, the reason it hasn't happened is because of, as Anthony was pointing out, gentrification. Um, I, I am somewhat... Um, inclined towards her perspective on gentrification in the sense that it's obvious to me that people moving into previously high crime neighborhoods who aren't likely to commit crimes, who are investing in those communities, renovating homes, bringing in their families, that this is probably a good thing. Bringing commerce there is probably yeah, a good thing what's, what's worth and probably helps to reduce crime. Is that the F- Ferguson, as we know it as a thing, mm-hmm. was 2014. The yeah. stop and frisk trial was 2013. Yeah. All right. So she was locked in, heels into the mud yeah. on this argument well before Michael Brown was killed, well before Eric uh, Garner was killed, any of this stuff. But she has not had a personal reckoning with any of the things that she was wrong about, which makes me feel like she deserves she, she needs to explain that. Yeah. She needs, she, she, she needs, she needs want, to own that. And she's got a 20 year track record of always just siding with cops. Well, yeah. I, and I think just for always, me, and for me, time. that's that's the that's the stuff that I would actually like to push her on. Um, I would like to push her on the the sort of basic 
fundamental questions here from a philosophical standpoint. When the police kill someone, should they investigate themselves as Michael Bell Sr., um, whose son was killed by the police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, back in 2004, as he puts it? Like, that is a fundamental question, which I suspect Heather would probably agree with what seems to me the only reasonable answer to that question. Yeah, but how Absolutely far we not. should go? Would you, in, would you, in which would you, case, you, these are reforms yeah. that we can agree on, and this is a bridge between the Black Lives Matter camp and the Heather McDonald camp. And if it is, then that's the kind of shit that we ought to be talking about and, and doing. And, and you know what? Um, I mean, it, it's it's interesting to watch. Like I go, my wife is a private investigator, as you know, um, uh, and every year I go to their annual dinner, and there's a lot of uh, New York's finest are all there. The bravest are also there. Uh, and uh, so people who work in DA's offices and prosecutors. And it's fascinating to watch people who are on the inside uh, working criminal justice reform. Like they're in a different place than the people who came of age writing about um, uh, broken windows and mm. like 1990s city journal era, like Giuliani, we've got to like, completely change the paradigm. Yeah. Heather comes from that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't know how much, and I, and I, and I know Heather and, and I'm friendly with her. Um, and I could be misreading her work, but I don't know how much she has adapted to the fact that the very cops that she's siding with and some of the prosecutors, they, evolved. Yeah. they are going to places like, hey, you know what? This forensic stuff that we're using is crap. It's crazy. Bite yeah. mark science. Well, I mean, it's wrong. I, 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 let's get an exoneration unit in Brooklyn that's exonerated quite a few people right. uh, now. I mean, let's let's go to a different place and let's work on it together so that we can get to better justice. Yeah. I don't think that the 90s uh, culture war crime mm-hmm. uh, you know, adversaries have really adapted to that new reality. And that's a shame because that's a great place to be. And really good stuff is happening there, especially on a local level and especially in New York City. Sure. It, it would it would add to her the seriousness of her arguments because a great many of her arguments are serious. I, I, and I, I totally agree. And I remember yeah. I was you know I grew up in the New York area in the nineties. My my father was you know was a large man was mugged many times doing his corporate workaday job stuff in New York. And so I was kind of raised in that environment that Manhattan's horrible. You know we need <laughs> we need to change shit. The Koch Dinkins this is all horrible. Giuliani for at least a minute it was like all right you know. There's a sheriff in town. And I remember reading Heather's um, op-eds in the New York Post way back when, you know, and like you said, she hasn't evolved a, a, a whit since then. And there's a lot of facts on the ground have changed since then. And police themselves don't, you know, a, a, a good many of them, especially people who are now out of the out of the job, have just, you know, come to the conclusion that it, you know, the, the steel boot on the throat isn't always the way to go. Well, and unconstitutional st- and, and let's make no mistake the, the 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 way it's going back and forth i've gotten a lot of pushback about this in print and on twitter but the way the nypd was practicing stop and frisk mm-hmm. which is what that trial was about uh-huh. was unconstitutional right? yeah. it was without I mean, and, and this has always been my challenge to stop and frisk it's not a question of whether or not it's effective in my estimation like, and, i don't and, start, and the tactic I don't start itself there. is constitutional if you have some if there's a reason for suspicion generalized suspicion on an area and anyone who walks through that area right. is unconstitutional well well even even if there's a reason for suspicion like the reason for suspicion being furtive movements furtive movements <laughs> like anything you if you seem like you're trying to avoid us we have the right to stop you yeah. 
arbitrary authority in the hands of government officials yes. makes me nervous as shit. Armed and quite frankly, officials. yes. And quite frankly, having a great many police in a particular community and giving them arbitrary authority, even if it's a high crime area where there are lots of people there who do want cops breaking up actions on the corner, like that might be potentially problematic as well. And those people's constitutional rights fucking matter. So that's always been my principal concern. And quite frankly, the the bar for me isn't, well, will it lower crime? There are plenty of things that would sure. definitely lower yeah. crime um, that, will it make are the not, that are not the right thing to do because it's inconsistent with individual liberty, which is which is the gold standard for me. We start there. Um, and I don't know that that she sort of reckons with that fact often enough. Um, so there's, there's plenty that I'd like to talk to her about. I don't want to sort of try her, uh, in abstentia. But bottom that's line, the, that's Camille, that's abstentia. It's, that's what I said, right? Close. Abstentia. Do you abstentia. want, uh, hundred proof more, <laughs> more or fewer, uh, cops in bed style? Um, Ooh. dude, let me tell you, <laughs> I can tell you so many, so many things. I never Never feel nervous when I see red and blue lights go past me in Bed-Stuy. Never. Not because you're wearing some really um, nice shoes. I've also this week um, now marks the end of a two-week period where I've had packages stolen from my house over the course of these weeks that have cost me hundreds and hundreds of dollars to replace. Um, it's never happened to me in the past. I don't doubt that other people have packages stolen from them in other yeah, places. I, I don't. Weirdly, I'm a gentrifier. In Bed-Stuy, I'm trying to see if this is a place where I would like to raise my uh, my daughter and 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 build my family and invest my resources. I'm not so sure yet. I am not really a pioneer. I don't even really like people in general. I definitely don't like people when I suspect you might be the bastard who's stealing my packages. And, and what it's do you a base that suspicion on? Just like you know, just you you looking over here too much. You tr- you too you too friendly. What you mean? Don't come over here. Coming in, coming in my yard. Um, so I don't, I, I don't know. I, I got a package getting delivered tonight, which I'm pretty confident is getting stolen, and the value of that is probably around two hundred fifty dollars. So I need to get the hell out of we here. We're gonna do any uh, idiots who wrote this because I got a brief one. Well, do it. Make it brief because my package is getting stolen Super right brief. now. As brief as this, uh, a uh, I know we're in the two hundred eighty character world, but this is probably under one hundred forty. Oh, Congressman Keith Ellison. Oh no. Uh, posing for a little selfie at Moon Palace Books. I just found the book that strike fear, seek, in the heart of real Donald Trump. And he's holding Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook, which I reviewed for the Daily Beast, um, and which I described as shallow hagiography. And, uh, I don't have any particular issue with Congressman Ellison. I know he's, uh, he lost a battle to be the, uh, head of the DNC and that he represents, uh, a certain faction of the Democratic Party. You know, good luck with all that. But the most powerful man in the world is not, uh, threatened by either Antifa or the book. And the book is stupid. And the book, uh, really, uh, is being kind of dangerously elevated by mainstream Democratic Party figures like the prominent congressman himself. And I think that, um, and I'm not, as somebody who's nonpartisan, as in I don't really care who's the president, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, um, 
I don't care if they if this hurts the Democratic cause in the midterms or if it hurts the Democratic cause against President Trump. But I don't like the idea. And I also want to be careful here. I don't elevate Antifa to super soldier Stalinists of the left who are going to take over the whole world and are poisoning our discourse. But I do think that. A congressman of his stature holding up this book as though it's something that uh, everyone should read uncritically, that this is this is the hashtag resistance. Um, it bums me out a bit because it's a really shallow piece of work that literally um, dis- dismisses wanton violence against innocent people who include journalists, uh, liberals who are protesting right-winging um, racists um, peacefully as somehow counter-revolutionary. The, the whole thing is just basically an argument for this kind of, you know, very insular political movement that doesn't deserve to be elevated as much as Congressman Ellison is doing or eviscerated as as much as a lot of people on the uh, far right are doing, you know, basically – like uh, people forget about far right, but like even people like Dave Rubin, uh, who uh, with in an interview with Brendan O'Neill, who I like and respect very much, Dave Rubin started pontificating the most dangerous group in America right now is Antifa. And that's just stupid, too. So I wish I really wish, even though I wrote a review of this thing, you know, I, and I was kind of ahead of the game. I really wish everyone would kind of just back off on this whole thing. So holding up this book is is a. Uh, I, re- I would regard as idiotic. I would uh, point out, however, it's a much better cover than Fire and Fury. It really <laughs> is. It's a nice cover. It really is. It's it's a take to take, and Matt points are taken at full circle. Really. Yeah. How, like how am I just discovering that the CNN is airing a special report on the uh, Trump-Russia investigation tonight? Maybe they'll explain why Paul Manafort is like suing, counter-suing, as opposed to trying to cut a deal. I think what CNN is realizing that half of MSNBC's programming, which has been marching up on the Russia conspiracy, yeah, Trump Russia conspiracy is the new where's the jet, where's the where's the the Malaysia plane, yeah. Uh, My some idiot wrote this is more of a some idiot better now. I'm going to write this, uh, which is uh, (laughs) which is Attorney General uh, Jeff Sessions, who yesterday we're taping this on Friday for Mm -hmm. yeah, Uh, Friday night. This is bad precedent to set, Mm. by the way. Mm. Um, Old. Yesterday, uh, rescinded a series of memos from the Obama administration that had given guidance to U.S. attorneys to maybe deprioritize the prosecution of people who are guilty of federal uh, marijuana-related offenses in states in mm-hmm. which marijuana mm-hmm. is legal in medically or recreationally. He uh, cut those out and said, look, this is these people are in violation of federal law, uh, which is true. They are totally mm-hmm. in violation of federal law. Um, uh, he did not, thankfully, write new guidance saying go prosecute mm-hmm. them. He said it's up at the discretion, up to the discretion of uh, the sloppily reported. All very much so. Even uh, like on uh, on Fox, where I was on with uh, Charles Payne um, mm-hmm. uh, yesterday, it was the lead up was like new crackdown on weed. It's like, no, nope. Theoretically, they could be, yeah. but he devolved authority to the U.S. attorneys, at least two of whom in Colorado and in San Diego, have said, yeah, we're good. Thanks. Uh, we're going to keep on doing exactly what we've done the last 10 to 20 years, right. which is not prosecute those cases. So 
don't write the new thing, Jeff Sessions, of like, oh, you know what? We are going to proactively prioritize those cases. It's bad enough that he did this. It was a bad thing to do, in my estimation, at a time when California is just joining the legal weed market. We have, we've got 20% of the country now living in recreational weed markets, and it's still very gray and murky when it comes to financing and banking and insurance and all these types of things, to have the Attorney General of the United States come out and add that sense of uncertainty, like the hammer could come down at any time, um, is a terrible thing. Don't go the next step. And I've been encouraged preliminarily with just the ferocious backlash against that, leading with uh, Cory Gardner, the senator from Colorado, saying he's going to put a stay on all Justice Department appointees until this thing gets fixed in a, in a direction that he likes. And other um, Congress people out uh, coming up with uh, <laughs> laws uh, or, or bills to say that they can't use any federal money to crack down on recreational legal weed. It's already illegal for them to do that uh, yeah. against medical marijuana in those states. So don't get happy, little piece of shit, Jeff Sessions. I saw Charles Cook, um, our friend, who pointed out on, on Twitter how, how bizarre it is that we've reached the point where the attorney general says that he's going to enforce this law and um, he's being threatened by congresspersons who are threatening not to staff the Justice Department to prevent him from enforcing this law. Um, it is bizarre that we don't just get rid of this stupid federal law. That makes it a crime to sell weed. Well, what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you guys both make of the? <laughs> and, and people are though. I mean, I, they're, they're reintroducing those yes. those laws right now as we speak, which yes. is good. Yeah, but 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 I've been hearing you know a lot of the really half-assed kind of conservative arguments that, well, rule of law, it's the rule. There's the know? rule is yeah. that is that you have what is it seven thousand basically cops. If you start adding yes, federally, yeah. federally yeah. Yeah. he ain't got enough cops. Yeah. He just don't. I mean, as it, as it stands right now, only I think 1% of uh, marijuana cases in the country are tried by the feds. Are yeah. tried by the feds. So they're already kind of, they have to make priorities and this yeah. can't yeah. be number one in their priority and I mean, to do it. It, it in, could, it could be. But that would I mean, be the Obama stupid. administration decided to make examples out of people who are in the uh, weed game in California and elsewhere, but especially in California from 2009 to 2012. And it was an awful, awful thing to do. Yeah. And hopefully we don't get back to those days. And in fact, that's, it gives me cause for hope that I mean, you have a, an unrepentant drug warrior as attorney general of the United States, sure. Trump, who's like a tough on crime guy, although he has been someone who has said many times in the past that this is up to the states uh, to decide themselves. But like if they can't reignite this damn drug war, it is now <laughs> overwhelmingly popular, including among uh, the, the majority of Republicans, that weed should be legal, period. It's, it's like it's, it's getting close to two thirds of the country now thinks that there should be legal weed, which is incredible. I mean, I can't I can't begin to tell you how crazy that is uh, from when I, I grew up. Um, and uh, and even larger numbers think like the federal government get don't even tell the states what to do at all on this kind of stuff. So I'm I'm optimistic that we're going to get to some place. Vermont just is is on the verge of doing this legislatively, which and that's the news is that it, weed is not legal in Vermont at the moment. Yeah, I mean, who uh, who knew? <laughs> and New Hampshire too. It's like uh, they're they're uh, I think still waiting to get there. But I think that hopefully this will inspire the type of backlash that happened uh, in 2005 after the Kilo versus New London thing, where 40 different states past proactive laws, giving the middle finger to people trying to use eminent domain to seize uh, a private property and give it to, a, to another private owner. I think hopefully we will see legislative backlash 
I hope to God it happens at the federal level. People just like, let's just deschedule this. Let's just not make this a federal crime anymore and, and, and dump it back to the states. There's a lot more talk about but that now than there has been. Descheduling is executive branch, no? Uh, you can, the legislative branch can also do that. The, mm-hmm. the executive can. Obama claimed that it couldn't. They have, uh, according to people who want to believe that, uh, that there's enough latitude within the executive branch to make that decision. But if Congress passed a law, the decision is made. Uh, but uh, Congress is just yeah, not they're, they're, in the habit of making actual laws. No. Uh, or, or like, Especially not ones that might ruffle the feathers of yeah. uh, the boss. No, I mean, a, a lot of uh, liberal... Uh, Tweeters and otherwise douchebags like uh, Matt Iglesias have pointed out, I think, uh, uh, accurately so, like, why isn't legalizing weed front and center in the Democratic platform from now on? It is so incredibly popular and particularly and among the same reason, and, 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 for the same reason Obama laughed at the, at the person who asked about that during the debates. It's well, still they, they feel as though it's uh, it's the sort of issue that makes them seem unsafe. Andrew yeah, Cuomo is among the worst prohibitionists in executive office right now. And Bill de Blasio is not much better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Don't even get me started. That's I where we are. My trash in a week. <laughs> are you kidding me? There's like 18 feet of snow on the ground. I don't give a sh. Listen, we're feet. here. Yeah. We're here. State of emergency. We're in the building, but we're done now. Yeah, this was a state of emergency special dispatch. Bye. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.